This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. Today, we're finishing up chapter 13. Matthew has spent much of this chapter recounting some of the parables Jesus told his followers. Now he concludes with a kind of epilogue, as it were, describing just how well his teachings were received. Sadly, there are many parallels between how the city of Nazareth responded to Jesus, even though he was born and raised there, and how our present culture responds to Christ. As we'll discover from today's message, unbelief, after so much evidence, leads to moral decay and corruption, and eventually to condemnation for eternity. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So if you have your Bibles again, let's read Matthew 13, verses 53 to 58. Matthew says, When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his own hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So this is how Matthew concludes the kingdom parables here by demonstrating further rejection of Christ, not only from the listeners of the parables, but now his own hometown. And I want to call your attention here to three specific products of truth. The reason Jesus was rejected is because of the truth. Church, the reason you will be rejected is because of truth. And this text here shows us three products of truth that will cause people to reject you, but they will draw you closer to God. So very simple outline today, three products of truth. The first of which is the truth surprises. According to Matthew 13 verses 53 to 56, as he concludes the kingdom parables, now Matthew presents Jesus in another teaching capacity here. Now in the synagogues of his hometown, the place where he grew up. Matthew doesn't specify the content of the teaching of Christ here like he did with the parables of the kingdom. But we know that his sermons in a synagogue are true. Why? Because Jesus is the truth, according to John 14, verse 6. So therefore, everything that comes out of his mouth is the truth. And the narrative here then shows people's reactions when they heard the truth from the truth. And the first of those reactions is surprise. They were astonished that Jesus had that kind of wisdom. Because remember, he grew up in the place. So they were familiar with him. Now, they did not, the Nazarenes here, did not deny Jesus' authority or supernatural power. It was pretty obvious. Their problem was they had a hard time associating them with someone who had an ordinary upbringing, someone they knew, someone they said, wait, wait a minute, isn't this the kid that we saw growing up? By naming also his mother and siblings, the Nazarenes here also demonstrate a lack of understanding of Jesus' dual nature. And because this is such a foundational elementary part of doctrine here without which you cannot really grasp Christianity. Let's just review them real quickly here. Very simple. Jesus is fully human, the adopted son of the carpenter. 
Now, at the incarnation of Christ, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, according to John 1, verse 14. So it doesn't mean that that's the day Jesus started to exist. He exists from eternity past and will continue to exist into eternity future. The incarnation, when we celebrate Christmas, demonstrates or indicates the time when Jesus became flesh, that the Word became flesh, and He made His tent among people. He tabernacled among us, is what the text says. And the reason for that, church, is very simple. He had to be born. Why? Because he came to die. You can't put a spirit on a cross. So the God-man had to be fully human so he could be nailed to a cross. And before his resurrection, you will remember that he displayed human limitations, such as hunger and fatigue. And Paul clarifies, for example, in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 7, that Christ existed in the form of God, but did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and as made in the likeness of men. In other words, the God of the universe, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came and put on humanity so that he could be one of us, so that he could die on a cross and rescue you and me from our sins. So he was fully human. But the other aspect of Christ's dual nature that these guys here miss is that he was fully God. Theologians like to use the expression hypostatic union. You've heard me say this before. It's a fancy term to indicate that Christ is both God and man at the same time. Perfect humanity united with non-diminished deity. And Jesus himself articulated this principle, this doctrine here with these words that surprised many people because the truth surprises. He says, I and the Father are one. John 10 verse 30. And, and not only surprised the many people, but shocked many people. So along with the Holy Spirit, the Son shares the same essence and divine nature with the Father. Jesus participated in creation according to John 1 verse 1. In fact, he's the agent of creation, the one through whom creation is made, the one by whom creation is made. He existed before Abraham, indicating the fact that he existed way before, in fact, from eternity past in John 8 56. And furthermore, according to Colossians 2 verse 9, we're told that in him all fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In fact, according to the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 1 verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of his glory, the glory of the Father, and the exact representation of his nature. In other words, when we read about Jesus Christ, when we look at him through scripture, we are looking at God. Fully man, fully God at the same time. The dual nature of Jesus Christ. So is this not the carpenter's son? Yes, from an earthly perspective, he is the adopted son of Joseph, but he is the son of God. So proper understanding of the identity of Christ separates true Christianity from cults. You cannot claim to be a born-again Christian unless you can answer correctly the questions of the Nazarenes here in verses 55 through 56. Is this not the carpenter's son is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. In other words, you will miss his identity unless you know the dual nature of Jesus Christ. That is part of the reason why these guys rejected Christ. Again, there's no question about his wisdom or authority, his miraculous powers. They just had trouble associating divinity with what seemed to be a humble, insignificant human being. May this never be the case here at Grace Baptist Church. We will never miss the identity of Christ. We know our theology because it's integral to our faith. It is important for us to know what the Bible says concerning the identity of Christ so we don't fumble with that doctrine. We know exactly how to respond when people knock at our doors and say, hey, can I talk to you about my system, my religious system, or whatever the case is. We need to be able to know. And furthermore, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. 
and they follow me, and I know them, and they follow me, John 10, verse 27. So that's us. We are the sheep of Christ. We hear his voice. We know him. We know his identity. We have no problem understanding the dual nature of Christ. Now, the surprise of these guys, the Bible says they were astonished. Another word for being surprised. Now, their surprise represents common realities or common reactions today. The gospel, church, is surprisingly simple. A four-year-old can articulate the gospel. The simplicity of the cross astonishes the human mind for a very simple reason. The natural man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, according to Paul in Romans 1 verse 18. The message of a crucified and resurrected God crushes human pride because we want to be identified with something big. We want to be identified with something sophisticated. We don't want to be identified with a God that was born in a manger. Come on, we want to be identified with the king who was born in a palace. Well, the day will come for glory, for magnificence and all of that. But in the meantime, we take great, great comfort in knowing that, yes, our God was made man and died on a cross and rose from the dead. And the gospel is very simple to articulate. It's not hard to understand. It's hard to accept because it crushes human pride. Our flesh craves the credit that belongs to Christ alone. And that is the problem. And therefore, we wonder. Can the carpenter's son put me in a right relationship with my maker? Or is this something that I can accomplish on my own? No, it's not. The Bible says something completely different. The truth surprises. Because our, in our own flesh, in our own depraved minds, we want to take the credit that belongs to God alone, to Christ alone. But let me give you some good news. The truth surprises, but the truth saves Jesus promises, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. John 8, verse 32. Now, some folks consider the word of the cross foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, according to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. So it's the power of God. And how do we celebrate the liberating power of truth, since we know that truth surprises, but also the truth saves, and therefore we have been saved because we know the truth. Now, how do we celebrate the liberating power of truth? Again, I'm glad you asked. It's very simple, because Paul says in Romans 6, verse 4, what do you do? You walk in newness of life. That is how you celebrate your salvation. That's how you celebrate the fact that you have been saved by the truth. You walk in newness of life. What does that mean? Well, you sin no more. See, if you're used to stealing, you steal no more. Because now you have the power to do that. Before you didn't. But now you have the Holy Spirit that indwells you and now equips you to quit sinning. Now, of course, you are not going to be sinless until glorification. But you can sin less. But let me show you the second product of truth here according to this passage. According to Jesus, truth not only surprises, truth offends Verse 57. Now, Matthew uses the Greek word here, scandalizo, from which we get the term scandal. So these guys were scandalized by the truth that Jesus presented to them in their synagogue. They were scandalized by the person of Jesus Christ, who is the truth. So they stumbled upon the truth. They should have rejoiced. Why? From the perspective of the Bible, church, the people who witnessed Jesus' earthly ministry saw a great light. That is what we learned months ago in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Matthew. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. 
Why? Because Jesus was now in the picture. Jesus showed up in their town, so a light dawned on them. They should have rejoiced. Finally, we see the light. Finally, the God of the universe is now with us. He came to fulfill His promises and redeem sinners. But instead of that, they were scandalized by the light. They were offended by the light. And sadly, to their own condemnation here, church, their heart and hearts eclipsed the glare of the sun, S-O-N, because they rejected Him. They were scandalized by Him. Now, the question is, What could Jesus have done or said that caused them to be angry at him because they were angry with Christ? Luke gives us the answer. Following the temptation in the desert in his first visit to Nazareth after the beginning of his earthly ministry, this is what happened according to Luke 4, verses 16 to 21. Listen carefully. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And as he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So that's what happened in his first visit to Nazareth after his earthly ministry began. So their eyes were fixed on him. They were surprised. They may have been rejoicing. Wow, this guy knows his Bible. And he's, he's claiming that scripture has been fulfilled. Well, I'm interested in that. But the warm welcome, if there was one, soon turned to a cold rejection as he confronted them. At which point, according to Luke 4, verses 28 to 30, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. You see, they heard from Christ and they heard the truth from Christ who said, I am the Messiah you have been waiting for. I am the truth. As a result of that, the people of the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. You see, they were so offended by the truth that they were ready to kill Jesus Christ. Shockingly, Jesus Christ returns to Nazareth. This is his second visit to Nazareth. And, and again, this was right after he told them the kingdom parables because Matthew tells us when Jesus had finished these parables. So that's the connector there, verse 53. So he tells the kingdom parables. And after this, he goes to Nazareth to the synagogue there for a second visit. But by this time, their anger had subsided. They have heard of the miracles of Christ. That is why they were surprised. And probably the reason they didn't try to kill him again. Because they realized, okay, this guy's got miraculous powers. I'm not going to mess with him. So they didn't want to kill him the second time. But tragically, they missed the truth. Because they were offended by the truth. And as a result, they missed the kingdom of heaven. The mention of Jesus' half-brothers here in this scene confirms two facts. I want you to know, maybe write them down here so that you won't get confused when somebody challenges your biblical view of the dual nature of Christ. Ready for this? The two facts that the mention of Jesus' mother and his siblings here is confirmed. First of all, Mary did not remain a virgin. Our friends in the Catholic Church will teach the perpetual virginity of Mary. Mary remained a virgin forever. Not according to Scripture. The second 
his listeners here in, in Nazareth employed a tactic common even to this day to deflect responsibility. This is what they're doing. They're asking the wrong questions in order to distract themselves from the real question. This is called deflection of responsibility because they were confronted with the truth. And when people are confronted with the truth, it is very common for them to resist the truth by asking questions that are completely irrelevant to the discussion. Now, the occupation of uh, the adopted father of Christ and the names of his siblings had absolutely no relevance to their eternal destiny. That was the wrong question. There, that was a tactic, a deflection of responsibility. The question they should have asked is this, is what this man saying true? Because if it is, then truth has a claim in my life. So the question is not, well, who is he a son of? Is this not the carpenter's son or is this not the son of Mary and so forth? No, the question is, is what he is saying true? Because if it is, then I have to change my life. I have to respond to the truth. They did, only they took offense at him instead of rejoicing in the truth. In church, likewise, today, people offer completely irrelevant justifications for their rejection of the truth that offends their sin. We have all encountered people like that. When you go and you share Christ with someone, you give them the gospel, which is the truth. You tell them, you give them Christ, and their hearts are hardened. They don't want to hear about Christ. What do they do? They throw questions at you that have nothing to do with what you're talking about. Why? In order to deflect the responsibility to respond to the truth, just like these guys were doing. For example, how many of you heard the following sentence? Well, the Bible contains many mistakes. How can you tell that the Bible is truth? The Bible has several errors. To which you respond, can you point me to one? They never read the Bible. This is what they heard in school. I don't like the music. The usher didn't shake my hand or whatever the case is. I, nobody rolled out red carpet for me. Friends, this has absolutely nothing to do with the truth. It's good to be offended by the truth. This is the question we need to be asking. Is this message true? Because if it is, then our sensibility against being offended must take a back seat. And we need to address the issue that the truth is pointing out. We need to address the issue in our hearts that the truth is confronting us with. Otherwise, there is no growth. But I have some wonderful news. The truth offends, but the truth also operates. And this is what I mean. Just like a surgeon who reveals a deadly disease and prescribes lifestyle changes and performs open-heart surgery with care and precision, the Bible does the exact same thing because according to the book of Hebrews, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to divide and distinguish thoughts. Church, I'd rather be punched by the truth than to be caressed with a lie. Consider that. I'd rather be insulted by Jesus like the Pharisees were than to be indulged by Satan. I'd rather receive scripture assault on my sin than society's approval of it. The truth offends, but the truth operates. According to Jesus' revisit to Nazareth, truth not only surprises and offends, but the third and final product of truth that we see here in this scene is that the truth condemns. According to verses 57 through 58, Jesus addressed the denial of the Nazarenes. He presented them with a proverb. An axiom, if you will, by saying, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his, his own household. So here it is, Jesus saying he's a prophet, which they heard this before in the first time he was in their synagogue here. But what Christ is doing here, he's demonstrating to them that their unbelief did not surprise him. 
He already knew what was going on. He's the all-knowing God. So Jesus simply walked away from there. He moved on. He said, there's no point in me doing any miracles here. And that's their condemnation. Because they're not going to acknowledge me anyway. Why bother authenticating the message? The tragedy of Nazareth, however, is not that its citizens missed the entertaining of miracles. They missed magic tricks. That's not the tragedy. The tragedy is that Jesus minimized their opportunity to repent by leaving. Listen to his rebuke to other cities who failed to acknowledge the truth that his miracles authenticated. Matthew 11, verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon that occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And Nazareth is in the same category here. Woe to them because they failed to recognize the truth. They were offended by the truth. They failed to recognize the truth, church, not because of a lack of evidence. See, we need to understand that. It's not because there was not enough evidence to convince them that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be. The one who embodies the truth, this divine attribute, spoke to them face to face and validated his message with signs and wonders. They rejected Christ because of their rebellious hearts, because of the wickedness of their hearts, not because of a lack of evidence. The author of Hebrews warns people here in Hebrews 3 verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there may not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So the sin of unbelief, church, is very serious, and it's not because of a lack of evidence. Times have changed since those days in Nazareth. But the wickedness in the human heart has only worsened since then. People are more prone to reject Christ today than they were before. We live in a society that refuses to acknowledge the truth, even though God has provided sufficient evidence about His nature, plenty of evidence about His nature. So when people ask you, I need evidence of God, no, you don't. The fact that you're speaking is evidence of the creation of God. The fact that you're breathing His air is evidence of the goodness and the power of God. So don't give me that excuse. Just check your heart because that is the real issue. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem. And that is the problem in Nazareth. Listen to how truth condemns such an unbelief. Paul says in Romans 1, verses 18 through 24, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, it's not that people don't know the truth. They suppress the truth. They know the truth. God has given plenty of evidence from His written word. Not only creation, not only general revelation, but specific revelation. People suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known of about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse for even though they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, and this is the judgment of the truth, church, therefore God gave them over in their lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Truth condemns, and that is frightening. Our generation is witnessing right now God's condemnation of America and the rest of the Western world. We're not the only culprits. 
A judgment, not a fire and brimstone, church, although, again, this will happen in the future. But the wrath, check this out, the wrath of being given over to impurities for the dishonoring of bodies, that is judgment. That is condemnation. And the truth condemns. So there's nothing liberating about the sexual revolution of our day. It's a condemnation of God. And we need to understand that. But here's some good news. The truth condemns, but the truth converts. The same God who pours down his wrath by permitting people to wallow in their sin stands ready to forgive, to restore, and to cleanse. In fact, that offer still stands today when he says, whoever drinks, present tense, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. That hasn't changed. The situation in Nazareth wasn't hopeless. The situation for us today in our culture, in our hometown, is not hopeless. Because even though truth surprises, it saves. Truth offends but operates. Truth condemns but also converts. See, we don't mind enduring rejection by men because of Christ. That is going to happen. That is part of the package. Suffer hardship with me, Paul says. And that's okay because God sustains us. But what terrifies me the most is seeing people reject Jesus because of their unbelief. Don't let unbelief stop you from coming to Christ. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org for more information about our church and this media ministry. We look forward to connecting with you. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.